Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is the podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. I'm Paul Jarrett. Welcome back, Paul. Hey, hi. Thank you. We're sitting in a different order. Yeah. We're kind of freaked order. out by that. Yeah. We, we, uh, location. we moved the equipment around a little bit, changed locations. We're inside Blue Box's office, which is pretty sweet. Should we tell people why we're doing it? Sure. I think we can by the time the episode airs. Yeah. <laughs> They'll have come and gone and, and said, this is not worth <laughs> filming. <laughs> right, right. So uh, CBS, uh, I should probably know the name of it. It's the National Today or This, this Morning. morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something. One of those. The National Today. Those television newspaper <laughs> things that I've heard about. Um, so they uh, contacted Bulu Box and a few other places in Lincoln about doing a story about the uh, startup ecosystem. And um, I said, hey, Matt, Brian, let's jam all our equipment in one of the offices at Bulu Box. And maybe we'll get some Inside Outside podcast airtime. And you guys Here brought over the equipment. Thank you very much. And we set it up. And we're rocking. Now we're going to see if our little uh, PR hustle, our little PR scheme <laughs> works. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, probably, they'll probably say it and then like get the name wrong. <laughs> Like worst podcast ever. No, it'd be cool. It'd be uh, it'd be neat if it worked out. Yeah. So uh, this week we're talking about design, product design, and, and all the things, all the things, uh, UI and that kind of thing. Product strategy. How do you go about building that first product? Yeah. So uh, a lot of people um, they want to jump right into it and just start building and, and all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of stuff that you can do. Uh, you know, just pre-building and pre-anything, and, and that's a lot of validation and that kind of thing. But let's just let's just imagine a world where you are completely valid in your idea. It's it is uh, it's good. We're building an MVP. It's perfect from the business plan. <laughs> your exact exactly, idea right. made money. All your exactly assumptions are how right. you thought it would. Your customers. <laughs> Are exactly, and you you spend zero dollars in marketing. It worked out exactly. I as built you the planned. perfect product. Why didn't people pay for it? <laughs> it worked out perfect. Yes. As perfect. we talk about a lot, you know, rarely is it the fact that you couldn't build the product. It's right. the fact that nobody would buy your product. Right, right. There you go. Find customers. Let's talk about some of the the pitfalls that most new product folks fall into, or even old product folks fall into when they're yeah. developing a, a product strategy. Uh, and I think one of the biggest thing is they start building before one, they do validation. Um, but two, because they have a team of folks that can actually execute, they spend a lot of times putting things into code, uh, that don't necessarily have to be in code until you understand uh, the real effects of all that. A lot of people go straight to code. Uh, This is actually a thing that I want to address because I've seen a lot of engineers do this. A lot of people go straight to code, um, in the, as a method of design Mm -hmm. And, you know, code, you have to think of design in levels of fidelity. And in the early, early stage of design, because everything is in flux and a a feature may not pan out or things like that, stuff just may not work exactly how you think. Um, You need to keep stuff in in as low of a fidelity as possible. And I argue against so many engineers who are like, no, man, I just I just go straight to when I'm designing when I'm designing UX, like I go straight to HTML 
And unfortunately, the iteration time on HTML is so low. It takes you so, like if you need to change the look or position of a button or whatever, it takes you so long to do right. that. So I like right. my, my recommendation is always to keep it in the lowest level of fidelity. So wireframing, even even hand-drawn sketches so yep. that you can move stuff around and, and, and get the feel of it. Absolutely. Um, because it takes two seconds to change There's so many like variables to consider. Oh, right? absolutely. And there's, there's stuff, believe it or not, there will be things that you didn't think of and that nobody else on yep. the team ever dreamed of. Um, and there's so many moving parts, you know, just um, uh, pricing and branding and, and so many changes that can come up. Um, especially when you, you know, launch that MVP and you start getting it in front of people and you go, Oh, you know, this, this is actually the answer. Not the, you know, yeah. it's not that sort of a thing. And, yeah. and I see to, to, you know, Brian was asking, you know, what, what's the number one thing it's, um, I think everybody just tries to add not everybody, but, but people, and we're guilty of this too, like adding additional features, yeah. right? You have to know how to say no in the product development right. and strategy process yep. because, I mean, you, there are so many pressures to add features to your, yep. to, to make it quote unquote better. Yep. But what you end up doing is, and I think you, Matt, you quoted this in one of your blog posts about three years ago or five years ago. You're, what you're doing is creating a Swiss army knife when you really need to be creating a scalpel. Um, yeah, or a butter. I used butter knife. Butter knife, yeah. And the reason I can't the, believe you just quoted him from his book. Yeah. <laughs> it blew my mind. What are you, Brian Ardinga? He's got a memory upgrade. I was, I was also going to say or add to that. You know, that puts you in the the you know the MVP realm, right? Like stick to your your minimum viable product. Yeah. Um, what's interesting for us is. Over three years, we've been around, and we have brands that have pretty high expectations of what we launch. So, you know, as we've launched a new product, Bulu Insights, um, which definitely you know is changing since we first launched it and changing for the better. Um, what's interesting to us is we have a huge customer base, and finding you know it, it can't be as rough as it was when we very first started off because the expectation is high, right? Yeah, and you know we got out of a. a product design meeting, I think it's yesterday. And there you heard the term, which I was like really proud to hear because it's one of our core values, but it was use your best judgment, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's kind of this fine line between MVP and just too many features. And it's kind of like, I think a lot of people think uh, MVP means cheap and crappy. Um, Right. The V is very important. It's it's viable. It doesn't match the brand perceptions. Does it, um, you know, actually solve the problem that Mm -hmm. you're trying to go out for? Well, you know, a lot of it. So I, I was actually mentioning um, the, the whole thing about the uh, the Swiss Army knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a Swiss Army knife, the reason I, I actually chose the Swiss Army knife is because it has a lot of features, mm-hmm. but every feature on the Swiss Army knife is weaker than if you were to just take that actual item in reality. So like the scissor, like I, the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the thing that I mentioned was you never, you're, you're never going to cut a rope with the scissors on a Swiss Army knife, the little baby scissors. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the thing. Oh, just give it to me. Watch me. I'll figure it out. <laughs> um, you have to. You can. <laughs> yeah, you, you possibly. Oh no, yeah, we, we get it. We get it. Um, versus the butter knife. Actually, I think the butter knife is is incredibly well designed. It, it's only designed to do one very specific thing. Um, but it's it's the best in the world at being a butter knife. There's nothing <laughs> else. What do you? What else are you going to use? Like maybe a trowel. <laughs> Tongue. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, so that's the kind of idea. It's like 
instead of throwing all the features and thinking you're going to make an amazing product, yeah. you know what you're building and build the best of that one thing. Mm-hmm. I think that Swiss Army knife, um, you can start off with an MVP, but you uh, a lot of times end up with a Swiss Army knife if you're not careful. And it's, so it's not something you just do at the very beginning stages of your first product strategy and, and first product that you introduce. It's like when you're adding customers and you're adding investors and you're adding press people and everybody's who wants new things added to whatever you're creating, <laughs> it's very hard to say no. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's very hard, especially when you get comp- competition in. And it's like, hey, that guy over there, he's our main competitor and he's added this you know, whole new area into his product. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. well, do we really need to add that? Yeah. Uh, and so there's this one-upmanship yeah. sometimes that has to so You always got to ask why. Yeah. Why? why. Say no why? more often than... So yeah. what's, a, what's a business case? You know, somebody... I, I've, I've seen <clears throat> both sides of the coin where people downplay the need for design and you know kind of big up engineer d- double down engineering yeah. versus a balanced approach or heavy focus on design uh, I, w- I want to think through a business case on on uh, you know how maybe CEOs or how people can kind of vision design for their their company uh, and, and from my perspective um, there, there's multiple takes on this but I think I think design is um, Especially like we live in a world that is design centric, like everybody thinks about design. You look at like it is unprecedented today how you can how the general public can look at a random product and know that it's well designed or not. Right. And, right. and it, you know, it's, it, it yeah, the, has not always been like that. Yeah, the bar right. has been raised. Absolutely. The, the design bar has been raised because yeah. it's so much easier I, to actually create I, good design. I mean, there's, there's really no. Uh, excuse for a startup not to have at least some level of design expertise just by looking at what's out there and using templates and a lot of different things out there, tools that make it easier to design than ever before. I think that, you know, people don't understand that they are competing with the best of the best products out there, right? Like startups come up with a with a widget and, and they're really proud and it's their best work and they should be proud of it or whatever. And it's a widget, but they don't like in their head, they don't realize that they're competing, competing with the Nike mm-hmm. of widgets, the Apple of widgets, yeah. the whatever. So, so I think, you know, sometimes groups get caught up and like, they're really excited, but they never kind of, you know, take that product and, and put it in the app store and, and pit it against other things. They right. don't take that product, put it on the shelf and look at it compared to everything else. And that's your competition. I see that's like a huge yeah. pitfall. So. And, and there's a general uh, public perception on what a good product is. And unfortunately, a lot of times, if you put out a poorly designed, either visually or from a UX perspective, um, if you put out a poorly designed product, people are going to generally equate your company, unfortunately, with shadiness. Right. Uh, a lot of Absolutely. times, you know, a lot of times that, that you know, especially in e-commerce. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. so if you if you're like asking people to give you their money over the wire, like over yeah. the internet, like you have to make yourself look like you are trustworthy yep. and worthy of that dollar. You well, can't and, just and, put the McPhee scan virus. Exactly. People still. Yeah. What? And oh, I think sorry. I was going to say, you know, and because the bar has been raised in the consumer space, it's also now been raised in the B2B space. So what in the enterprise space, you used to be able to create software that was used by, employees right. and that you could kind of force the employee to use it and it was kludgy and everything else. You but have now, to use Microsoft. The, yeah, the, the bar is like, <laughs> they're used to using consumer-grade products. So even yeah. in the B2B space, you have to have a level of consumerism or, or design expertise around that. Yeah. 
the bar is just much, much higher. What was your question that you were asking before the case study? Was that a question or a thought? Well, or? generally, what is the, the business case? Like, how can you make a business case for design? And, and oh, man. how can you convince CEOs that design is important for their company? Yeah. Generally. Yeah. I think one way you can do it is to, again, not think about it as a siloed product um, development process, but really look at product development and product strategy in relation to the entire customer journey. So how does a customer, you know, find out about your product and service? Where do they come from? How do they get into the the conversation with you? How do they interact with the product? How are they supported? All those things. And if you kind of map out that customer journey, your ideal customer journey, or, or not even ideal, like what, what's actually happening in the real marketplace, yeah. you'll have a much better idea of what particular features, functionality, yeah. design you need to have in place um, versus building in a, a vacuum or a silo. And I think that oftentimes is the case. Now back to the show. I, I, I feel like I have to say this this episode. Yeah. If you're a founder or a CEO or CTO or CIO or somebody that isn't, doesn't grow up in the world of design and have a true passion and a true whatever, get, get, get your head straight. <laughs> I really forced myself not to curse right there. Hire the best you can find and you can have an opinion, but trust that designer, trust yeah. that UX, UX, UI person, trust them to do their job and get the hell out of the way. Like you, yeah. you have to, especially if you, you know, I have seen this from advertising, marketing, you know, I've done plenty of freelance work back in the day and you know, you have to trust your designer and on the flip designers need to understand that it is not a product that is built with the intention of being art, right? Mm -hmm. It is a product that is designed with an intent to communicate or make money or, or take action, or or take or, yeah. action right. And so everybody needs to, you know, I think not everybody, but a lot of times people need to trust each other a little bit more, um, but understand each other a little bit more. But man, the, it, you can get in some danger. You can really f*** things up yeah. if you get somebody meddling in you know design that doesn't really understand what yep. they're doing yeah mm -hmm. and they're demanding comic songs yeah totally <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait you guys don't use that what, what do you guys use um you know i've, I've, I've 
Font-wise? No, no. <laughs> I know you're a papyrus kind of guy. Um, what do you guys... Yes, uh, we can go into fonts forever. By, by the way, side note, go watch the movie Helvetica. It's amazing. Nice. Have you guys seen Documentary, it? Documentary, yes. Oh, it's no. so great, yeah. It's my favorite um, font. Amen. Mine too. Um, what do you guys use as software tools or what have you used? I've, I've used like fluid.io. Of course I end up, I end up just going to PowerPoint and screenshotting <laughs> stuff and dropping it in. But what do you guys, uh, recommend for some yeah, good software? I mean, there? a lot of times I'm, you know, collaborating over the web. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's, I'm, I'm collaborating with people in San Francisco or whatever. Uh, so Envision is actually really good for that. Envision? Yeah, Envision. Mm-hmm. I-R-A-E or? I-N. I-N. Yeah, I-N Vision. Yeah, gotcha. So pretty good. Uh, both for mobile and for web. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about any anything else? Have you guys tried Fluid.io? I, I, I think I have, but I, I don't know. What, it's what? like a mobile design app. Oh, cool, yeah, yeah. You can, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where it was awesome, and then they sent out a big email of, like, we're changing a bunch of things, oh. and, like, <laughs> it was a little bit frustrating. I'm sure it's back to... That up, old classic up, email. Yeah, huh? up to snuff, <laughs> but... Uh, There's a yeah. product I haven't used it, but uh, I've seen others use it, uh, Pop, a uh, prototype on paper. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, um, Mobile. You can What's basically take kind yeah. of uh, hand-drawn wireframes and, and kind of Can- turn it turn it into a little bit of a working product. Canva is another. Canva, yeah, Canva is more for visual design, but it's gotcha. good. For, it's good for sharing out. It's social media incredible stuff. the tools that are out there. Oh my God. So yeah. there's no excuse if if you have a vision or yeah. you're trying to yeah, communicate with and, people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, think about even just like five years ago. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's it's good to think about it in a timeline. Like what's your product vision and, and break it down to, you know, six years. What's it, what's it supposed to look like versus six months yep. versus six weeks and yeah. kind of a tackle your product design and that from different uh, timeframes. And yep. that'll give you a different perspective. Of, okay. What do we really need to get done in the next six weeks versus yeah. where do we ultimately want the product? Because right. a lot of times, again, you, you come in with your big vision and you, you want to build every single thing that you want in six years. But yep. realistically, what is that one feature that's really going to get the first customer to engage with you? Well, that's probably what you have to build first yep. and go from there and build out from there. I got a good, good uh, case study for you. Yeah. Um, I signed up for Uber back when it was Uber taxi or Uber yeah. cab? Uber, Uber car. Cab. Uber car, is that what it was? Yeah. Uber or Uber cab, yeah. Uber cab. Right. And I was living in San Francisco. Yeah, and I, I, it might have been you. Somebody told me to sign up, and I had to be in the first batch, like a yeah. couple thousand users. Um, and I just remember, what's the founder's name? Travis. Uh, Travis. Travis. I get an email. I swear to God, I got an email like every week. And it was like, sorry. Like, sorry, <laughs> we lost. All, we gave all your information to hackers. <laughs> sorry, we, we gave you. Sorry, I'm using your credit card right now to buy coffee. It, it was terrible. Wow. Um, and you can actually go to YouTube if you search hard enough and you can find some of the original like user interface, mm-hmm. original video yeah. of Uber. Um, and it was terrible. And, and by the time that I was using this, cause I was like, Oh, these are just crappy little cabs on top of mm-hmm. Google maps. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the branding and the way that the emails were, um, I actually unsubscribed from the service, uh, service and like went out of my way to make sure and clear all of my information yeah. out and, and do whatever I could. Um, and I, you know, didn't, there was another service that I started using in San Francisco. Lyft. 
It might have been. Uh, no, it was like it was called some taxi. I don't know. It was oh. all local. And then then we got Zipcar and, and yeah, like, yeah. tried all that stuff. So I, I do want to talk about a little bit of um, you know theory behind like UI and UX and maybe the slight differences in UI UX. So basically, UI is the kind of visual pixel pushing. It's the it's the color. It's the color. Prettiness. It's the, the aesthetic. It's the you know how it looks, the view, and all that kind of stuff. The UX is the machine behind that visual. Like what drives the visual choices? Okay, well we know that it has to look good, but it also has to have this color because we know that psychologically people react to this color more. People react, you know, and and I want to talk, you know, about a few UX principles. I've got three principles, uh, UX principles to live by. Number one, remember the order in which people read. And digest information. So, uh, whenever you're thinking about UX, you should be thinking uh, and understanding how that people read from left to right, up and down in columns, right? So, what, obviously, if you think about left to right, up and down in columns on a web page, what's the most valuable piece of real estate on that page? Upper left. Yep, the logo. The logo. So, uh, you know, think about that's exactly why the logo is at the top left because people read from left to right, top to bottom. Yes, our logo is in. <laughs> Everybody's saying, is my logo at the top left? Yeah. I told Stephen to put it on the top left. <laughs> um, and then principle number two, study emotion. Emotion is everything in design. Emo- like drive an emotional response. Uh, you know, you, you'll learn this in e-commerce. You'll learn this in all various types of businesses that everybody thrives on an emotional response to something and, and, mm-hmm. and specifically purchasing power. Yep. Uh, so think about UX. Yeah, think about emotion when, when it comes to UX. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then number three, use color as utility. Color is not just something that's aesthetic. Color is a utility, just like electric is a utility. So think about it from a standpoint of what, em- in, in regard to the previous point, what uh, color should I use? Because I need to think about what emotional sw- response I need to use. How does programming language? I don't know how much time we have, but I'm I'm curious if uh, what your guys' take on this. But wh- how does programming language um, impact design, or does it? Right? Can I do the same thing in? I think the two worlds um, should collide it, from a business perspective. You know, these the, the designer should understand why the coder is making choices, and the coder should understand why the designer is making choices. But they should also be f- somewhat independent in thinking. I, I I don't like the idea of, and I know I'm going to get a lot of flack from this, but I don't like the idea of a designer making choices specifically because they're limited on the technology side. Mm-hmm. I like the designer making choices. I don't think you should catch flack for that at all. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, from engineers specifically. Right. Um, but I think that a lot of times the... Uh, you know, design is dictated by the technology that's available. And I, I think that, that should be pushed back a little bit because um, the designer has really, really deep convictions on what they think this product should be at, from an emotional and psychological standpoint. And, you know, regardless of the technology, I think that it should be implemented in that, in the way that, you know, the UX and the, and the, the study of the psychology should dictate. Yeah. And there are always trade offs. I mean, you, you want to have time to market and, and costs and everything else kind of come into play ultimately. Um, you know, I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of uh, companies make is they have a, this is especially true not after they've developed their first product, but as they are out there in the marketplace, 
they have a team of developers, and then they look at their pipeline and say, okay, um, we've built all the features and that, and now we've got three developers on staff. Let's just keep building because we've got three developers on, on staff and we have an open pipeline. How do we, you know, and that's not necessarily right. what they should be doing. Maybe they should be going back and refining the features that they built in the first place and getting bugs cleaned up and everything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times you it, you get into the trap of, okay, I've got developers on, on staff. Let's just keep building features. And you right. end up with a Swiss Army knife. Yeah. So, so to summarize the conversation, um, my one point would be to understand why you're putting something in a design, not just from an aesthetic standpoint, but from a UX standpoint. I think UX is incredibly important, but sometimes um, brushed under under the table a little bit. My takeaway would be learn to say no. Um, you know, take your list of first features and then probably cut it by half, and you're probably close to being yeah. <laughs> right uh, on that first deliverable. I would say um, be respectful of uh, each individual's given talent in yeah. the field. Yep, yep, that's good. So I think that's a big challenge, is that there's sort of a lot of buzz, um, but there's not uh, a lot of how-to. Leslie Jump, thank you for being on Inside Outside. If you could start uh, by telling our audience a little bit about yourself and, and what you do and, and uh, what brings you to the world of startups. Sure. Uh, well, thank you, Brian. It's it's an honor and a privilege to be on the podcast, so I'm happy to do this. Um, I uh, have a, a longish career in the technology world. I, I started out um, in the operating side and actually in, in kind of marketing and through a, a series of uh, sort of uh, coincidences or flukes, uh, ended up on the team that was part of the overall team with FinSurf that launched, you know, what we today know as the commercial internet in the early 90s. And um, so that was a fascinating time. And uh, from there, jumped over from doing marketing things to doing things that looked more like deals because we were seeing how rapidly business models were changing. Uh, and, you know, large corporations and small corporations alike were trying to figure this out. Um, and that propelled me into working my first startup myself. It was actually a spin out of one of the big pipe companies here in the Washington metro area um, called PSINet. So one of the backbone internet providers. And it was all their commercial, or I'm sorry, their consumer business um, in mostly Latin America and Eastern Europe. Hmm. Uh, so they were all emerging markets. And that was my simultaneous first exposure to entrepreneurship and, and being in sort of at that point was kind of grungy startup space. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and also emerging markets, which was fascinating. And one of the things that I just kind of fell in love with was the challenge these guys had in, you know, tackling building new businesses on top of everything else that was going on in their environments. Um, and that kind of gave me the bug both for startups and for startups working outside of the traditional places. I'd worked for four years in Silicon Valley. I'd worked in New York. I'd worked on the AOL Time Warner deal did a bunch of other things, but where I kind of found my home was um, in these communities where people bring enormous skill sets and, uh, and experience, uh, but maybe aren't, you know, the traditional places that one might think of as technology hubs um, and where they're building emerging technology hubs. And so that's, that's how I got into this business. And then uh, you recently you've gotten, or not recently, but you've, you've been involved in angel investing, but recently started a group called Startup Angels. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure, sure. So um, I, uh, again, serendipity play, has played a big role in my career choices. So um, after I was uh, in that startup and, you know, done a few other things, um, I happened to meet a guy two weeks after 9-11 who happened to be a career diplomat from the U.S. to the Middle East. And uh, we subsequently fell in love and got married. Um, but in addition to all that wonderful uh, wonderful life and wonderful experience. Um, he kind of drop kicked me into hanging around with the U.S. diplomats or the diplomats from the Middle East to the U.S. in the fall of 2001, huh. which was an extraordinary time to Amazing. be exposed to that. And when we first started traveling to the region, uh, I was just fascinated with the, and this would be early 2000s then. So I think 2003 was my first trip to Egypt. Um, I was just fascinated again with all the talent and the potential there. But in the in the countries surrounding the startup nation, Israel, there was relatively limited um, kind of traction these startups were getting, and in large part because there was relatively limited capital available. So I kind of naively thought, well. You know, I know startups. I've worked in Silicon Valley, and my husband knows wealthy guys from the Middle East. <laughs> Let's put them together. <laughs> um, and I became a partner in a new venture capital firm uh, called Sawary Ventures. We launched, uh, well, we came together in fall of 2009. We launched the firm formally um, a little bit later. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But uh, at that point, so when we started looking at this, um, and I, you know, started looking for partners to work with and subsequently identified two fantastic um, Egyptian entrepreneurs and investors. There were five venture capital firms in 22 Arab countries wow. with total assets under 200 million. So, you know, you, we think about that part of the world and or parts of that part of the world as being sort of a wash in cash. And, and you can make that argument. But five firms, $200 million. It was just Nothing. It was tiny. Um, so nowhere to go but up, right? Uh, we unfortunately picked January of 2011 to launch our firm, which uh, you may remember in the particular week that we announced our firm uh, and announced our first deals and, and et cetera, et cetera, was the week that Ben Ali was ousted from Tunisia and the Arab Spring started. And right. the following Tuesday, our whole portfolio was out on Tahrir Square, you know, trying to code apps while they were, you know, fending off tear gas. It was unbelievable. Um, but uh, so I, I got into the world of angel investing first, you know, here in the United States and then venture capital investing internationally. Um, and what I saw, you know, although certainly the Middle East was sort of an extreme version of it, what I saw was that, to put it simply, startups are everywhere, but venture capital isn't. Mm -hmm. And there are just, you know, any number of enormously, uh, you know, great companies being built in communities large and small around this country and uh, across the globe. But in many cases, they lack the capital they need to be able to scale. And so, you know, some of them will then move to other markets. Some of them will just, you know, kind of die on the vine. And we know that that doesn't need to happen in a lot of cases because we know that there is a tremendous amount of capital out there to, uh, you know, potentially invest in these companies. You know, when you, you know, and you were um, gracious enough to join us at an event our company produced a couple of weeks ago, you know, you saw us talk about there, we believe that there's, you know, upwards of 50 to $100 trillion moving from the generations, from the boomers and the, the greatest generation to the Gen Xers and Gen Yers and the millennials over the next 30 years. If only a tiny, tiny percent of that were moved from the assets it's in today into startup investing, it would just, you know, 
explode the world of potential for these investors. And so that's what we're trying to do in the shortest form. We're on a mission to increase the number of angel investors and the amount of capital available in markets beyond the usual suspects across the United States and around the globe. And we're doing that through information. Basically, we think that uh, the key to this is providing more information to the people who have the potential, both the wealth and the intelligence and the experience to be great angel investors. So, so you mentioned, yeah, we were, had a chance to spend some time in Chattanooga last, uh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, uh, at the Angel Summit, an event that you, uh, the sort of Angels produces. What, um, what gave you, or what made you think that uh, let's have these events around the world or around the United States uh, to, as a means to kind of uh, create that demand for angel investing or give the, the information to angels out there? Sure, sure. So we, we started, uh, there's a lot of Startup Weekend DNA in our company. Uh, I was on the board and uh, there are a number of folks in the organization that worked with Startup Weekend or Global Entrepreneurship Week. Um, and so we started out with, well, should we just start simply by creating Startup Weekend for angels? Um, and there were some smart things about that strategy and there were some utterly flawed things about that <laughs> strategy. But uh, we started on a local level working on smaller smaller events. And we have, we now, you know, Two years later, we've we've tested those in a number of places, and we have a strategy for how we're going to scale that nationally and ultimately internationally. But along the way, and this would have been a, a summer of 2014, um, we were approached by the uh, a gentleman who's at OSTP in the White House, Doug Rand. Um, he and I had coffee one day, and we were talking about what was going on in the industry and what was going on with the crowdfunding rulemaking. Now, this is mm -hmm. summer of 2014. He was convinced that the rulemaking was imminent. Um, I, I'm sure you know that it actually <laughs> was last Friday. <laughs> Still not signed anyway, yet. <laughs> Uh, we can talk about that because it looks like they didn't quite do what we wanted them to do. But anyway, uh, short, long story short, you know, the White House, OSTP, had a keen interest in um, encouraging smart thinking around startup investing. They're, they, you know, like many of the regulators, it's kind of obvious given the rules that we've ended up with, are very concerned that, you know, Joe and Jane, consumer, are going to be taken to the cleaners by, you know, hustlers. And, um, and so they wanted to, they said, you know, basically they gave us the idea, you know, well, what if you, what if you had a national summit on the state of the art and startup investing and brought all the key players together and it wasn't just angel groups, but it was also all the other participants in the sector. And I said, well, sure, that sounds like a good idea. So we did our first one in Dallas, which you were also participating in. Um, and then we realized, uh, that this thing started to catch on that communities wanted it. And, and part of what we do, although we're a private company, we very much sit at the intersection of sort of economic development, impact investing and, and for-profit investing. And so we then had cities, communities come to us to bid on the next one. Um, and we had different organizations approach us about doing them in, in other markets outside the United States. Um, so we realized that there was a hunger among the community leaders like yourself uh, to interact with other folks uh, who, are, who are, you know, trying to tackle this challenge as well, whether they come from the perspective of somebody who runs an accelerator or somebody who runs an angel fund or a micro VC fund or even just a regular VC fund. We, we have an, mm -hmm. a good number of those participate. We see tremendous interest from, you know, all the, uh, the nonprofit organizations that are related to this and economic development. You know, I like to say at our first national summit, we had two mayors from North Texas just register and show up. <laughs> attendees. 
we had a vice mayor from Phoenix at the last one. <laughs> you know? uh, so that's a pretty big city. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we definitely have those folks. And then the other one, the other segment that's started to become really interesting for us and we're, we're, uh, we're on a path to figure out how we can really help them out is actually the people who control all those um, trillions of dollars in wealth, or at least the investment of them and the wealth managers. And we've had a number of those folks um, start to participate in our programs as well. So you mentioned some of the things that have popped up on the scene in the last few years with regard to the changing landscape of angel and venture investing, whether it's you know angelist or crowdfunding and that. What are some of the things that you're seeing and what are some of the challenges that and opportunities that you see for, for founders uh, looking for capital uh, in today's market? Sure. Um, well, one of the reasons that we we're, we exist, that we are trying to tackle this this problem, is because we see the, a proliferation of different options for people to invest, but not a lot of guidance on how. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have found, and we've done research in you know about fifty markets across the country and internationally. So we you know we do this both for our, our digital content that we produce um, on our website at startupangels.co/markets and on our blog. Um, but uh, we also do it for the work we do on our programs. Um, and so one of the challenges is that you know there's a lot of PR about startups. There are television shows like you know, Silicon Valley on HBO and Shark Tank on the national networks. Um, And that creates a lot of buzz uh, about it. But there's not a lot of easily accessible information about how to get started on this, how Mm -hmm. to get things going. We did a program in Detroit. We're actually uh, technically in Ann Arbor a couple of weeks ago. Uh, right after our Chattanooga event. And that was a statewide event for, you know, angels across the state of Michigan, primarily Southeast Michigan. Uh, so, you know, um, that whole area around Detroit, mm-hmm. Ann Arbor, et cetera. And we had, you know, I'd say probably 60, 65 folks come and, you know, it was a half day session where maybe not quite a half a day. We did a mix of bringing national level speakers and local folks, you know, to talk about kind of what the state of the art is and what's going on locally and some of the things that were of interest. So afterwards I was at the cocktail party with, um, some of the folks and uh, I spoke to this one gentleman who was there and he'd never been involved in technology. He'd never been involved in startups. Uh, he owned a series of car dealerships and some other automotive things. It was Detroit, right? That kind of makes sense. And he's like, this is great. This is really interesting. I've always wanted to invest in startups. I think it's really cool. Now, can you just tell me what an accelerator is? And, you know, we in the industry, that's kind of a given like air, right? But we don't realize, you know, that we talk to ourselves a lot and the industry talks to ourselves a lot. So I think that's a big challenge Mm -hmm. is that there's sort of a lot of buzz, um, but there's not a a lot of how to. And even something like AngelList, which, you know, people talk about as sort of the the 800 pound gorilla in online uh, startup investing. Um, and it is to a certain extent, certainly dominates the current key players. In reality, when you look at their numbers, last time I checked, it's been a few weeks, they have less than 15,000 angels registered mm-hmm. after four years out. Um, and they're highly clustered uh, in the valley and the alley. Um, and the deals are highly clustered in the valley and the alley. So they really are providing a great, very valuable service for people who already know what they're doing. And that, that makes sense too. And you know, you mentioned the new crowdfunding stuff that will only add to the confusion, I believe, as quote unquote normal investors or non-accredited investors will have an opportunity to to uh, dip their toe into this space. So I, I applaud what you're trying to do as far as educating the marketplace. Well, and, and thank you. Thank you for that. And um, as it relates to 
the the crowdfunding regulations. I will confess that I have not read the 684-page document <laughs> produced last Friday. However, I have read a number of analyses of it. Um, and if they are correct and, and they're from reputable sources, it's really not going to move the ball at all because they have put a couple of real um, gotchas into the into the regulations, um, not the least of which is, and you were asking about challenges for entrepreneurs, compliance requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw one estimate that suggested that versus the, you know, maybe 15 to 25K in outside costs for raising money from accredited investors and your internal costs of reporting that you would have right. as a startup, but, you know, um, it could be as much as $250,000 over the period of your investment uh, in audit requirements and, you know, other forms of third-party um, reporting that would be required as a part of that. And you're capped as an entrepreneur in, in raising a million bucks. So in a, in a world where the average seed round these days is 1.9, now granted those, those averages are weighted by the coasts, but even so, you know, I, I don't know what you're seeing in your neck of the woods, but 1.9 is not all that outrageous for a seed round where we live. And, you know, you can only raise half of that mm-hmm. using crowdfunding. Um, and uh, the, other, the other key thing that I saw that's just a real flaw, again, if the analysis I've read are correct, um, is it requires that each individual person be listed on the capitalization table. So as an entrepreneur, what would happen then is if you raised money from 100 people, then all 100 of them have to get all of your reporting and you have to get K-1s out to them every quarter or every year. And you have to, you know, get, you know, their information back. So it's the commission has taken an incredibly conservative uh, posture on this. and And I think it really has just resulted in something that the vast majority of entrepreneurs will not be in any way interested in working with. Yeah, it'll definitely be see, interesting to see how it all fleshes out in the future. But um, qu- quick question. So on if you were sitting down with a, a startup outside the Valley and, and you're helping them kind of guide their way through how to start looking for capital, um, it, both in their local ecosystem as well as kind of evaluating whether they should go to the coast and that, what kind of advice would you give them? Sure. Well, the first advice I give them is read. Read, read, read. There are so many things out there today that weren't when I was starting my first company. Um, There is so much greater transparency. There is a number of great uh, investors who are sharing a lot Mm -hmm. about their investment strategies and what they look for and their perspective. Um, You know, Brad Feld wrote the book, wrote a dozen of them (laughs) on on what you need to know. And they're very engaging, very readable books. Um, So, you know, I'd highly recommend, I think Venture Deals is the one that kind of outlines the legal structure stuff, but there's all kinds of, you know, he's tackled all kinds of topics and his blog is a great one to follow. Um, On the East Coast, Fred Wilson is extraordinarily talented. Um, You know, First Round Ventures provides a tremendous amount of information. Um, Back out on the West Coast, Mark Sister from uh, Los Angeles is a very thoughtful blog. Um, The guys at 500 publish everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people may think they're crazy. I think they're crazy in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but they, they have very, you know, thoughtful information. Paul Singh, mutual friend of ours is, is publishing a lot. So the first thing I do is, you know, get a short list from, you know, your accelerator and some of the other better accelerators about, you know, who are the, the, the really smart people in this space and, and understand what they're thinking. The second thing you can do and you need to do is look at, you know, how, you know, other people who are in your, comparable space, and there is someone in your comparable space, um, uh, are marketing themselves and to whom. Uh, 
Um, not that you want to necessarily go to the same people, but you'll get a lot of great tips. You know, angel investors and even venture capitalists are all very thematic. And that means that they like to invest in things they know and love. Um, and so you want to find those people to invest in your company. If you're building an app for autonomous vehicles, you want to find somebody who has some expertise in the automotive industry. You don't want me in there. Um, but, you know, conversely, if you're building, you know, an international ed tech startup, I might be somebody you talk to because I was a former COO of an international ed tech startup. Um, so, you know, it's think about it as marketing, just as you would think about it, marketing your customers. Uh, but these are different kinds of customers. These are customers who are buying equity in your business right. versus buying your product or service.